is chapter 4. We will be primarily looking at verses 4 through 7 of the chapter. The central point being that the Lord is at hand. Let us read Philippians chapter 4, the first 12 verses. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm fast in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Cynthia to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known by God, known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned that in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to be abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthened me. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the encouragement in your word to rejoice in you, to be anxious for nothing, because you are at hand. And we pray, Lord, that as we consider this matter this morning, that you would lift our hearts and encourage us and strengthen us, that, Lord, we might glorify you and that we might live lives in reasonableness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a message for his day, but the message does not change and the need for it does not really change. We face many things to be anxious about, many trials, many troubles, many concerns. And Paul in this passage is encouraging us to rejoice in spite of it all living in joy that we can have as we have confidence in the Lord himself. We are told to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Notice he doubles down on it, not enough to just say once, he says it twice. We should live as Christians life full of rejoicing and full of joy. The world sees happiness and joy as being pretty much the same thing. They're really not. We can have joy in trials and in troubles. We can have joy 
in our brother Tim's home going yesterday. But it is not happy. Joy is a more spiritual, internal understanding of things and how they work out. We know that he is with the Lord. He is freed from his sicknesses, his illnesses, his pains, his sorrows. And so we have joy. But we can be unhappy at the same time to suffer loss of a friend, loss of a loved one. They're different. Now, if you were to ask most people to define what is what would make you happy, what is happiness to you, I think it would boil down to having everything I want and being able to do what I want. And as a Christian, I can say, yeah, I'll agree. My joy comes from having what I want and doing what I want. And you might be thinking, what? <laughs> well, think about it, though, for a minute. As we are transformed more and more into the image of his son, what do we want? The things of the world or the things of heaven? The ideal Christian wants what God wants. And the ideal Christian does what God wants him to do. And so a good Christian wants what is right before God, and that would make him happy, and wants to do what is right before God. And that would make him happy, would fill him with joy. And so as we think about joy, we really need to think about it from that Christian perspective. You know, we are 180 degrees out, out of sync with the world. Who are the three most important people in the world? Me, myself, and I, if you ask the world. But to the Christian, the center of our universe should be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The three in one God. And if that's true, then our joy is in our conformity to God, desiring the things that he wants, not in having what we want in a worldly sense, but in having what we want in Christ, closeness with him. Paul's exhorting them here to rejoice in part because he doesn't want them to be overcome by the trials that they're facing. Sometimes we lose track of God. We're so focused on the problem at hand, the problem we're suffering. You know, I got to get a job. I got to earn money. I got to feed my family. I got to get a house over my head. I got to deal with the sickness. I have stress many days. I go to shop. And it's like, oh, I don't have my mask with me today. Well, I sneak in and hope I don't get screamed at. You know, we, we have many of these trials and struggles. And in Paul's case, there was a rest. There was persecution, there was seizure of goods, there was the potential even for death. And he doesn't want them overwhelmed by those things. He wants them to stand firm and have joy in the Lord, the joy that belongs to them as believers. My joy comes not from America being run the way I think it should be run, not from the politicians I want, and not from the freedoms I want. My joy comes from my place with Christ. True joy is really found in our closeness to God. And that's the key here. The Lord is at hand. He is here. He is with us. We do not need to be anxious because he is there. True joy can be seen in, in understanding the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. I have this treasure. 
It is more valuable than all the things the world can give me. All the pleasures of the flesh. All the desires of the eyes. And that is where joy comes from. I have the greatest thing. And Paul speaks of that in chapter 3 and verse 8. It counts everything else loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. If we really are knowing him, that is a source of joy. I have something more valuable than my health. I have something more valuable than my home, my car, my job. I have Christ as my Lord and my Savior. You know, we, we see this in the Psalms a lot, that this joy that comes from our being united with God and close to Him. And in Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, it said, The Lord is always before me. He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for he will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let, my, let the Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, that, that unity with God is the source of real joy in the Christian's life. Real joy that we can experience by being close to him, by drawing close to him. We can say, as he does in Psalm 18, verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. You know, when God is our all in all, we have the greatest of things and we have comfort and joy and confidence and security. We have his word, his commandments. They are to be desired more than gold and much fine gold, we read in Psalm 19. We have that closeness to God that can give us great joy. And that joy is an eternal joy. We spoke about Elder Hart's homegoing in Revelation 21, 3 and 4. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. No more shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. You know, our eyes is on the, are on the prize, the prize of God in eternity with him. And that is why we can have joy in spite of what's going on in the world. Remember, we talked about this back when we looked at the book of James. Chapter 1, count it all the joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And so these trials help us draw nearer to God and they complete us so that we are more in the image of Christ, that we are more in fellowship with him and joined to him. And so even in the worst of trials of sickness and suffering and loss and persecution, we have but to look at those as things that will make us more in the image of Christ and closer to him, if we are handling them in faith, of course. 
Paul has talked about it a little bit in this chapter, this idea of drawing nearer and nearer to God, but he says, I have not already obtained it or become perfect. Right? Remember from Philippians 3, 12 through 15. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He knows he belongs to God through Christ. And he wants to draw nearer to him because that is the source of this joy that he is talking about. Rejoice in the Lord and being nearer to him and being conformed to his image and becoming more like his son. And we have that close-knit fellowship that gives us comfort. And that comes through persecution, through trials, sickness, difficulties. Peter tells us that the tested genuineness of our faith, which is more precious than gold or perishes, or even though it is tested by fire, that, that that is what is coming out of our trials, he says in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. You know, persecution, troubles, difficulties, they purify our hearts and draw us nearer to God. And so we should have joy. How do we handle trials and troubles and sorrows and grief? Joy. But he goes on in verse 5. Right? Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. You know, with our trials, we have joy. With our joy, we need to have reasonableness. Now you might wonder, what is reasonableness? The word is defined as being fitting or meet or suitable. A fair recompense. Yeah, too many, the dictionary has too many old English, older English words. What does he mean? Meaning that our reaction, our behavior is right for what has happened. You know, we all know the person who's basically, they call him bipolar today. They mean, oh, everything is happy and happy and, oh, oh no, I dropped something. Ah, oh, the world is coming in. Miserable. That's overreaction. This word is really the opposite. It's having an appropriate reaction. An appropriate reaction meaning reasonable. Another definition for this word can be fair or kind or gentle or good. I think this concept is important enough and not coming out in church often enough that we should look at this word a little more closely. It's used in this passage, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. In 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, he's talking about being a good person. He says, not a drunkard, not a violent person. And the word violent there is pugnacious is an old word for it. Somebody who's quick to get into a fight. Uh, but gentle, they translate this word gentle there, but, or reasonable. Instead of being quick to fight, reasonable, opposites. Not quarrels when we're a lover of money. In Titus, he writes this word again in Titus 3.2. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle or reasonable, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So again, we see it as you know, being right, reasonable, rational, fair. In James chapter 3, we see this in verse 17. The wisdom from above is first peaceable, then gentle is the translation, but reasonable. Open to reason, which means somebody's willing to hear what they're supposed to do and go do it. And that's, again, we see that 
This is what a Christian needs to be, to be reasonable in their handling of things. Uh, Peter uses the verse and word in 1 Peter 2.18. Subjects or servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. The gentle there is the, not only to the reasonable master, but to the crooked, corrupt, irrational, unreasonable master. And so the idea then is a Christian is part of our testimony is salt and light. The salt of the earth, the light of the world, is that we be reasonable in how we handle things. Does your reaction line up with your faith? That's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about being reasonable as far as men consider reasonable. But if I say I believe when I die I go to heaven and I will be with God, but are we terrified of death? Are we afraid to die? I might be afraid of dying a painful, horrible death, but are you afraid to die? You know, the reasonable reaction of the Christian is we have lost our friend and we are sad. But our friend knew Jesus as Savior and Lord and is in heaven. And so we have great joy. Paul says that we do not mourn as other men mourn because we have a reason for that. The reason being, of course, the Lord is with us. He is at hand. He is always there. And he tells us here, our reasonableness is to be known to everyone. It's not just the reasonableness in our heart. Now, this is part of being ready to give a witness for the faith, the, the hope that is in you, the reason that is in you, by being reasonable. He's calling them and he's calling us to endure everything, our sickness. What is our reaction? Oh, I'm doomed. God hates me. Hate him back. That's what the world says. No, our reaction should be one that is reasonable with our faith. What is appropriate? Well, God is giving me a trial. How I handle my trial can improve my walk with God, my closeness to God, can earn me a reward in heaven. Sickness, disease, lack of food or clothing or shelter or money, Exile, prison, reproach, death. All of these things they were facing in their day. And he's calling on them to be reasonable, to demonstrate their reasonableness, demonstrate their hope. Now the world will say, you're being foolish. You're being crazy. But God says, if you have hope in him, your reaction should show that hope. Pure and simple. They shouldn't get angry. They shouldn't be afraid. They shouldn't be hopeless because they know Christ as Savior. And we should be mindful of this. Paul calls them to be mindful of this kind of reasonableness earlier when he says to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Back in chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. Do it all without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. What is grumbling? What is disputing? Well, it is unreasonable. We should be reasonable. I think Paul makes a strong point to this in Romans chapter 14 as to our reasonableness, what it looks like. He says in chapter 12, verse 14 through 21 of Romans, 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own eyes. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay to the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now the normal person says, you know, you're, you're, you're sick, you have a right to be grumpy. You have an incurable sickness, you're right to be bitter and angry or hopeless. You're suffering pain, you have a right to lash out. Even sometimes if the pain is you know, not inflicted by the other person, you still have a right to lash out to people. If you're busy or running late, you have a right to be short-tempered with people. If you're hurt, you have a right to revenge. If you don't do such things, obviously you're not coping well, you're mentally ill, you need counsel. Uh, what does Scripture say, 1 Corinthians 2.14? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Our reaction to our suffering, to our sorrow, to our trials, to our temptations, is going to seem like madness to other people. <clears throat> madness that can result in them lashing out at us or wanting to compound our suffering. You see that happen all the time. We say they kick you when you're down. They see that you're suffering, but you're handling it well. And what does that inspire in them? Bitterness, rage, anger, desire to hurt you more, to make you suffer. And they aren't happy until you're not reasonable because they don't understand the reasonableness that comes with God. He gives them a key to living that kind of life. It's a life to rejoice in suffering, to rejoice in sorrows, to rejoice in this world, have joy in God. We need a key. We definitely need a key. When the wicked, the godless, see our joy in trials, I think they see a little bit of what they can't have. They know we have a treasure, and it isn't theirs, and they want it, but they can't have it. So they want us not to be able to enjoy it. You ever seen that in children? Somebody gets a new thing, and another child takes it and smashes it. Why? They don't want you to enjoy that. Well, we enjoy Christ. We enjoy God. We have joy in him in spite of all that happens to us. And it makes them bitter and angry. You don't find the hatred for other religions that you find for Christianity in the world. And that's the reason, because it's true. They know God is not theirs, that he is their enemy. And we are enjoying him. And they want us to stop. It's sad, but it's true. And they get inflamed, you know, like a, a dog that smells blood. They want to increase the harm and increase the hurt. And they're bitter. But we have hope. Our hope is not in our own strength, our own wisdom, our own power, 
even our own goodness. But our hope is in the Lord, and the Lord is at hand. Verse 5, the end of the verse. The Lord is at hand. Well, what does it mean that he is at hand? Well, there are two ways in which he's at hand. The first we see in places like James 5, 9. It says, don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. God is there. He sees. You know, I have children. What happens in secret? They have two different stories. But if the judge is standing there watching, what do they do? You know, the judge is at hand. They know. They're busted. But we know the judge is at hand. Is there anything God does not see? Is there a hole dark enough we can crawl into that he won't see our sin? Is there a place far enough we can run to that he's not there? He is at hand. Jesus says in Luke 18, 7 and 8, will not, give, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? We all long for justice, not for ourselves, because that would be bad, but for the people who hurt us. But God hears us. He knows the persecutions and the trials and the troubles and the sorrows and the hurt of his children. And he cares. And he has promised to bring judgment swiftly. That does not mean somebody sins against us and tomorrow they'll be condemned or today. That's not what he means by swiftly. Think about in America. What happens if somebody commits a murder? Well, they get a trial. A trial could take years. What happens when they're convicted even though they're guilty? There's an automatic required appeal. How long does it take for a serial killer who's been caught to be executed? Apparently in America, a minimum of 10 years. By then, justice is defeated. And the left will say... Capital punishment doesn't deter killing. Well, if capital punishment is delayed at least 10 years, there aren't many criminals who are planning 10 years down the road. They don't care. They care about today. They care about this week, this month. <coughs> Justice delayed is injustice. And no murderer in America receives justice. And so there's no deterrent. What Paul is, or what God is saying is, justice will be speedily. You stand before the judge, he pronounces your guilt, and you'll go off to hell for your judgment. Right away. No delays, no, no gains, no playing around. Because he is at the door, he is ready to do it. Of course, there's another way in which Jesus is at hand, in the more important way. We can say that the Lord is at hand because he is with his people. Psalm 73 is a wonderful psalm for thinking about God's presence with you. Starting in verse 22, he, said, he admits, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, 
Those who are far from you shall perish, and you shall put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. Think about that in context of what we're talking about. He has nothing in heaven or on earth that he cares about as much as God. And then that way he is able to rejoice. If you know the psalm, you know what he is struggling about. He sees the wicked prosper, the evil go unpunished. And he's lamenting, why? What's the point in following God? And then he remembers their end, their judgment. And that's when he says, I was brutish and ignorant because I was not accepting and understanding. I was not having joy even in what was happening. But he says, God was with him, led him by the right hand. And that is what it means to have God at hand. You know, a child who is lost, you take them by the hand and you lead them to safety, to their family. That is what we're talking about. God is there with us. <coughs> he is able to lead us by the hand, to bring us to safety, to joy, to happiness, to bring us to green pastures. And think of the psalm. psalm. He is able to comfort us in all of our trials. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Psalm 73, verses 7 to 11. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be found. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And because we have the Lord at hand, we can face our trials. Whatever our sorrow is, we know he is there with us. He is leading us. He is guiding us. He will take us in the way everlasting. And our hope, our confidence, our joy is all in that not in the things of this world. And because he is the Lord at hand, we can have that confidence. You know, if our parents make a promise to us, if a politician makes a promise to us, we might doubt their ability or even their will to carry it out. But God is God. He has the ability to do everything. He says in Ephesians 1.11, that we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There is nothing outside of his ability, nothing outside of his power. I might tell my children, yes, I'll do something, but if I get sick, or I get hurt, or I get a phone call and I need to go visit somebody, I might not be able to fulfill it. But God, he knows all things before they happen. He has his perfect plan in place. He is capable of doing what he said, no matter what. Remember, Jesus talks about the sparrow. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 and following. Yet not one of them falls from the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, you are worth more than many sparrows. A sparrow does not fall dead in the field far from human eyes unless it's part of God's plan. 
We're more important than a sparrow. His plan will be carried out. How is that a comfort to us? Well, we know Romans 8.28, the great promise. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Suffering with terminal cancer for years will work out for our good. Being persecuted, it will work out for our good. Having our nation collapse, if that's God's will, it will work out for our good in the end. He has promised and he is able Does he have sovereignty over even the political situation? I remember in Daniel, Daniel says, Blessed be the name, Daniel 2, 20 and 21, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and night. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Proverbs 21, 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is sovereign over all, including wicked kings. Remember that when Israel was judged, Babylon and Assyria are both said to have been raised up by God and led by God to do what they did. They got their power from God. He is sovereign over all things. Sometimes we want his sovereignty to be only for our good. Right? God has to do what I want him to do. He has to make me happy the way I want to be happy in this world by giving me the things of this world. And then we say, well, God can't do it. Well, God can do all his holy will, and that's not his holy will. But he is sovereign over everything, from the sparrow falling in the field to the decisions of the President of the United States of America. And he has promised that he will work all things out for our good. So we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to have that anxiety, that fear, That what happens if the Democrats win the election and they control both the House, the Senate, and the presidency? How is our world going to be destroyed? We can have confidence that if it happens, it's God's will. And we can have confidence that it will still work out for our good. Now, what if the pandemic really was a pandemic? What if there were the end of the world potential due to this disease? Should we be afraid? You know, the Black Death hit Europe and decimated the population. The Christians were not afraid. They went out and helped the sick because they knew God was sovereign. And what is it better to be doing? Fighting against God or doing what he has said? And so they went out and they did their lives. They helped the people. They worked. They did what they needed to do, not cowering under their beds but confident that even if they died, it was in the Lord's will. Of course, in our case, we're finding out that it's a bit of a lie, and the government has had to remove access to all the numbers of how many people are sick and dying because it was disproving their case. At its worst, three times as many people were dying of the flu still. You know, why people are cowering under their beds? Why half the American population, according to a survey I saw today, why half the population thinks it's out of control, I can't imagine. Brainwashed, foolish, no trust in God. For the church, even if it was true, we should not lose hope. God is still sovereign. He is still with us. He is at hand. He is leading us by the hand in the way everlasting. We do not need to be afraid. We do not need to live in fear. Paul 
understands, though, that it, this can be troublesome and hard for us. And so he's going to give us two tools. First, though, in verse 6a, he, he warns us about our anxiety. Be anxious for nothing. Do not be anxious about anything. He, he, Peter has spoken about this before. He cast all your anxieties on him. You remember that passage? 1 Peter 5, 6-11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that at the same, the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. We don't need to be anxious because we have God with us. If he is with us, who can be against us? If we can say truly, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard it until the day what has been entrusted to me. I know he will raise me up on the last day. I have no doubt. I have no fear. I have no concern. Hebrews 13.6 The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Why should I be afraid of man? Why should I be afraid of the unknown if God is with me? Do you remember being a child and being afraid? What did you do? Mommy, Daddy, can I sleep with you? Right? I know a couple like that. Well, we have God with us. And he is far mightier than Mommy and Daddy. And he has made promises to us. Honestly, if we believe the things God says about himself, that he's all-powerful, that he's all-seeing and all-knowing, and that he is everywhere... <coughs> if we know the plans he has made for us, that he has told us in Scripture, his love for us, then we really have no need for anxiety. We have no need for fear or worry or fret. We're told to draw near to him and draw near to the throne, and he will draw near to us. James 4.8 He has made promises that if we come to him in prayer, he will hear us. Ask and you will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. For which of you, if he has a son who asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father is in heaven will give good gifts to those who ask him. Good, not in the definition of the wicked and godless. Pray to God that he give you a million dollars and he will give it. Isn't that the name it and claim it? That's not what he's promising. Goodness in scripture, goodness of God. Now, notice though that he says all things in this passage. In everything, by prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. There is nothing too insignificant to take to the Lord. 
Now, sometimes our parents were a little busy and they didn't have time for every little foolish thing we wanted to ask. But God is not like that. He is infinite in his wisdom and knowledge and understanding. There's nothing we cannot ask him. He, he gives generously without reproach, we read in James 1, verse 5. Gives generously without reproach. We can ask him whatever is troubling us. It is not too much for him. We can ask him over and over and over again until our heart is calmed and our hope is restored. It is not going to trouble him. It is not too insignificant. Now, you might say, well, I don't believe God will give me what I want. Well, we know that he says you do not have because you do not ask, James 4, 2 and 3. And so we need to ask. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Yes, if you're asking for something wrong, you're not going to get it. But that doesn't mean you should give up on God. It means you need to work on your heart. If you ask for what is right before him, then you can have hope in him. Now, if it's something you're afraid to ask him or embarrassed to ask him because it's sinful or corrupt or you know it's contrary to what he wants, then it's probably something you shouldn't be wanting and you need to change your perspective in your life. You might be praying for a million dollars and realize you're wrong. Or you might really be desiring riches and wealth and honor, but you're afraid to pray for it because you know that that's not what God is wanting for your life. God wants you to be close to him, to focus on him and the things that he has. And that includes to take up your cross daily and follow him, to suffer for him. So we should pray for everything. And if it's something we're ashamed to ask God for because of its wrongness, then we should stop wanting that. It's hard. We should also pray with thanksgiving. We're told that throughout the New Testament. Always giving thanksgiving to God for all things and in all things. Paul talks about that repeatedly especially. But what if we're not thankful? And that's why we're praying. Oh God, I have this terminal disease and I'm miserable. I want you to fix it. How can we be thankful? How can we thank God? That's why we're usually praying. It's because we're not thankful. So how can we be thankful? How can we do that when we want to grumble and complain? But we should ask ourselves, what right do we have to grumble against God? Has he wronged us in some way? Dare we accuse him of some sin or crime against us? God, your providence has not been as good to me as I deserve. Remember the people of Israel in the wilderness? Oh, what is God thinking? You brought us out in the desert to die of thirst. Oh, what is God thinking? He brought us out in the desert to die of hunger. They were angry. They grumbled. They wanted to stone Moses at one point. Do you remember what God said? Numbers 14, verses 26 to 28. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they have grumbled against me, saying, Say to them, 
As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I shall do to you. They're grumbling against him. God is unfair. God is unjust. God wants to hurt us. I will give that to them. God wants our children to die. He will take their children. It was a sad and horrible thing if you read what happened to them 40 years in the wilderness. But he says, I will give them what they have grumbled against me. Why should we be thankful, though, if we're, if we're suffering? Why should we be thankful if we're dying and we're praying to him for help and for relief? Well, there's one thing we can all be thankful for. God has not dealt justly with our sin. Thank you, Lord, that it's only this and not worse. Thank you, Lord, that I am not getting what I deserve, but I am getting your mercies. And then we can pray for more mercy. But God, this is so much for me. I'm struggling. Grant me greater mercies than you have. We all deserve an eternity of torment in hell. And that's why we have no right to grumble. And that's why we should always be thankful. We are not suffering as much as we could. Even if we are suffering more than any man alive. Even if we are Job. We can be thankful for the mercies God has given. And that he isn't dealing with us justly according to our sin. And so being near to the Lord, him being at hand, being near to him through prayer, is a tool that helps us to have confidence in him. And notice what he says the result of all of this is in verse 7. And then the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Where does that peace come from? Us having everything we want and everything we desire in a worldly sense? No. Us understanding we have God. Us being near to God. Us holding his hand or him holding our hand. And the blessings that we can receive through that. In Psalm 32, David says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Now David had sinned and lived in his sin for a long time. We would call him backslidden for quite a while. When he took Bathsheba, murdered her husband, and wanted to raise his child with her. He was not confessing. And he was in that backslidden state for a while. But he says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as heat of summer. And then he says in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity, saying I will confess my transgression to the Lord. <clears throat> And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We can see that peace which surpasses understanding by its opposite. When David in his sin departed from the Lord and was backslidden, his bones wasted away. And now he is back with the Lord and the opposite is true. He has that peace. You know, we read the stories, if you ever read the book of the martyrs, them being you know, tied up and sent into the stadium, wild animals let loose to eat them. They brutally attacked them and devoured them alive. 
But what did they do? They sang hymns of praise to the Lord while they were being attacked by the lions because they knew where they were going. This brief and momentary affliction that they faced was nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory awaiting them in Christ Jesus. And so they had that peace, that peace which really surpasses understanding. This peace is ours in Christ. We read in Romans chapter 5, the first five verses, that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access into this faith, into grace into which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Think about it. We were at war with God. We were facing eternity of suffering and torment in hell. And now we have been collected by him to his bosom. We are his beloved children whom he loves, whom he cares for. That peace which allows us to endure any trial, any trouble, any sickness, any suffering, any persecution, any terror in the world with hope that allows us to cast our anxieties on him and have joy in spite of all that's going on. That is ours because the Lord is at hand and he has given us this peace. And that peace guards us from our fears. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have called us from our sin and misery, forgiven us in Christ, and brought us, Lord, into your kingdom as your beloved children. And you have given us this great peace. Peace that comes through our suffering, through our trials, through our difficulties. We have joy through it all because we have you and your Son at hand to lead us, to guide us, to care for us, to love us. We have peace with you so that we can experience the peace and joy of heaven in our hearts through faith. And we pray, Lord, that as we face many trials and many troubles and tribulations, and we face great turmoil this next week with the election coming, that we would, Lord, be confident in you, that we'd cast our anxieties upon you, that we'd rejoice in knowing you and having you as our Lord and our Savior, that we would have no need to fear, no need for anxiety, but be able to be reasonable, to be able to say that God is sovereign and I am confident in him. And we ask your strength to endure. In Jesus' name, amen.